namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa puttang dhammang sankhang namasami Today is a sala puja, and the sala is the month, the name of the lunar month that existed at the time of the Buddha in this season. Traditionally, in the West at least, we've named it as the day of Dhamma, Dhamma day. So this is a, traditionally to reflect on the uh, teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And then on the, in May, we reflect on the life of the Buddha, so we call it Vesaka Puja, the month of Vesak, so we call it Buddha Day sometimes, and then uh, in Thailand, in the full moon of February, we contemplate the, uh, the Sangha, Sangha Puja. So these Buddha Dhamma Sangha are the three refuges, and they're powerful icons and images and reflections in our tradition. And also every every uh, every Uposa today, every Poya day, we recollect our commitment to a particular way of living and uh, it's both communal and personal individual and so today I was reflecting on um, conformity like personally I was very surprised that I became a monk because my my nature was was not to conform to the norms of society not in any kind of rebellious way or some kind of flamboyant way. But the norms of society around me, or the things that people told me to do, weren't answering my questions, weren't really leading me to peace. So my nonconformity was more existential and more from feeling like I don't fit rather than, again, rebellious. And it wasn't also kind of some kind of fashion statement where I wore flamboyant shirts and had a blue mohican. I dress very conservatively, really. And then I find myself in a very conformist kind of lifestyle. And we, we really do conform very strongly to a pattern of, of behavior, to a hierarchy, to a system of rules, to routines, to authority, to all manner of things. And perhaps we're all a little bit similar, that we are, in some sense, uh, non-conformist in that way. That just to be here, to be in the robe, you have to somehow be dissatisfied with some of the norms that conventional culture tells us to, to follow and pursue. And yet we live in a, in a very kind of a strong sense of conformity. And there's many ways you can do that, many ways you can conform to a, a body of rules or to a, a community, to a, to a kind of system of living together. And conformity can come from a sometimes from fear. So someone who, say, drivers will often observe speed limits because they know there's a radar trap or there's a a camera or there's a policeman around the corner. So they'll conform to rules of the road partially out of fear, but also partially out of realizing that it's probably healthier to conform to the rules of the road. So we don't go through a stop sign because that would be really stupid. And But maybe we don't speed around the other side of Perth because there's no, there's going to be a policeman there or something like that. So 
the conformity can come from uh, a kind of mixture. Like fear sometimes is a, it's very good for society that people are afraid to kill each other or rob and beat each other up and things like that. Uh, it contains things. But obviously if fear were the only motivating factor, the only reason we, we, we conform to these sets of behaviors because we were afraid, we were um, fearful of peer group pressure or fearful even of karma, karmic retribution, we still have to address that fear. Uh, but fear of, of, of consequences can be quite healthy. You know, if I'm, if a person is working in an office and there's a petty cash box and they, they have a chance to, you know, get lift a hundred, two hundred dollars, uh, the fear of the consequences of that, the karmic consequences, the fear of getting caught, or just the fear of what the mental states would be of um, distrust and so on, that kind of fear could be quite protective. But then we can also conform out of psychological fear. You know, just psychologically, we're, we're afraid of, of um, our peers, or we want to look good, or, or things like that. And that psychological fear could be uh, unwholesome, because it still be wrapped up in ego. Uh, sometimes we'll conform because we want to get something. You know, we, want, we want our projects, or we want resources from a situation, so we we cooperate and we uh, conform to certain norms of communication and deference to authority because we we uh, need something, we want something personally, and that can be good too in the culture that, that we have to have some give and take. That if I don't if I don't uh, respect you uh, and your wishes, you're not going to help me when I need something. So it can foster some cooperation. But if my uh, conformity then comes from a sort of manipulativeness. You know, I'm I'm going to be nice to uh, a certain kind of a person or certain people because I know if I'm nice to them, they respond well to me, and if I keep going down that avenue, then I'll get what I want, and then I'll score, and that would still be ego-based, wouldn't it? You know, so, so that would have to be looked at. And these elements come up in all of our minds, I think, in some ways. We can conform out of a, uh, other uh, other ways too. We can conform we can conform out of a sense of faith. So we have this um, system of training. We have the eight precepts. We have uh, something that's given to us by the Buddha and the elders that we respect through our tradition, and that's handed down to us as a as a living tradition. And and we have. Um, Encouragement that, that when we when we do this together as a community, um, we are we are given a certain sense of social harmony. Um, people respect us and they offer us requisites. Uh, they we don't have to reorganize society every morning. Uh, new people can come in because there's a sense of stability and the elders and those who have come before don't feel it's a total hassle to bring new people in. Uh, a junior person can come in and quickly seal, this is what you need to do. And so the conformity can come from uh, a sense of faith, a sense of, yeah, this is appropriate. This is what the Buddha asked us to do. Um, and and we, uh, in, in a monastery like this, 
we um, we're very I serve very conservative in the sense that we you know we have a system of training that's been handed down to us that we try to adhere to quite diligently but also we're in a Western context so we're always pondering okay how do we fulfill this um, aspect of our training in a culture which is not Buddhist there's both uh, uh, a reference to our elders to Thailand to Sri Lanka but a reference to our own predicament and that's intelligent and that's kind of an intelligent sharing so it's not just a blind following of the norms have been handed to us but it's a, it's a kind of more respectful consideration of what our elders have given us and then from that respect the respectful dialogue between us and then our teachers to see so how do we do this and there, there are always questions coming up about resources, about um, behavior outside the monastery, about the way we raise our robes, how we wear, what do we do, how do we look like a monk in the winter when it's minus 30? How do you not look like a, a hunter with, with a dress on? <laughs> so um, we conform out of a sense of respect and, and uh, deference to elders. Those are all the social ways of, of, of conforming. And you can see if, if, if there's any ego in that way of conforming, that we'll have to address, because that'll be a source of suffering. So the person who is very fearful of, of, of peer group judgment and is always conforming out of looking around, that person's going to have to look at that fear. But that doesn't mean that all of a sudden the person becomes rebellious. And that what could happen if one just kept the rules out of fear and then when they say yeah screw the rest of you I'm just doing what I want that kind of rebelliousness as a reaction that would still be another ego thing or a person who conforms out of a sense of manipulativeness um, and being nice to like a, a senior person but being dismissive to a junior person that kind of uh, lack of uh, a kind of hypocrisy um, the person might get what they want, but still they'd have to deal with that hypocrisy, still that kind of mind which is manipulative. And that would be suffering. So the way to then, the kind of larger way to uh, consider conformity is that by giving ourselves to this tradition, reading it, understanding it, and trying to see where its sources are and how it's practiced and coming to agreements is a, is a vehicle for reflection. And that's something uh, that we can do internally, not just socially. That's something we have to do to make it relevant. Because a, a, a system of training which we're just, say, based on fear, then what do we do when we're alone? You know, do, when we have no one watching us and there are no, con, no kind of restrictions or supports and structures uh, that, we can, uh, that help us along or to coerce us or whatever way you want to look at it, what do we do when we're on our own? When there are no structures, when there are no um, uh, people watching, how uh, what happens to our minds? And, and if our if our practice is dependent on uh, externalized social structures, then of course uh, we see on, on our own we have problems, and those we have to deal with. So solitude is helpful too. On the other hand, just not wanting to be bothered, not wanting to be bothered with the. Uh, morning evening chanting with chores with duties and so on and just thinking well um, solitude to where it's really at that's where you do you really do your practice 
well, then you wouldn't be here. There'd be no point in being here. So to be here, one has to have that kind of wisdom to see whether well, there is value in 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 society. There is value. I can learn something. I can develop very wholesome qualities of of goodness and compassion and and caring for other beings uh, and caring for a place. They're very wholesome. And there's value in solitude. And if one doesn't see that that value in both and learn uh, to use both situations, solitude and and community. Uh, as reflection, then one will either become very busy all the time in society and not know how to use solitude, or one will run away to solitude and resent communal activities and do them to a kind of minimal nature and run away to where the real practice is. Both will be forms of ego, you know, both will be forms of suffering. So one sort of, you know, when one lives here, one kind of takes that on board. This is design. It's designed this way. It's not designed for total solitude. It's not designed for uh, working and being social beings all the time. We try to uh, both, you know, are part of it. And that's the, the design. So, so kind of understanding that and not trying to make a a chicken into a duck. You know, it's not a retreat center. Say, it's not something where we can just say, Bonte, you know, I'd like to do my own retreat." Um, uh, I'll pay you guys 200 bucks and I'll just go to my kuti and you feed me and I'll, I'll do a retreat. That would be another place. You do that somewhere else. Here we we give ourselves to a convention. We give ourselves. And that convention has, you know, we respect the elders because they've had some experience in this. So the, the, to use this as a vehicle for reflection then is, uh, is the contemplative or meditative way of conforming, uh, of living within moral boundaries and moral structures and agreements and etiquettes and um, what have you, uh, in a way to, to, to watch how, how, uh, how that affects me, how, how that affects me in a way which is uplifting and encouraging and other ways where I feel annoyed or irritated uh, and how the sense of self arises and how suffering arises and where non-suffering is. And so on a sala puja, we, we, we contemplate um, both the Dhamma and the Vinaya. And the Dhamma, in you know, its, its most uh, broadest form, is that we, we say the, the Four Noble Truths, so like the elephant's footprint, and all other teachings fall within that. All other footprints fall within that. So all the teachings of the Buddha should fall within some of the categories of the Four Noble Truths. And it's a teaching that we hear again and again and again. And the idea of contemplative life, reflective life, is that we we deepen our understanding uh, through returning to uh, themes which the Buddha emphasized are important, returning to them again and again and again, and deepening our understanding of them until we, we see them as the Buddha saw them, until we have the insights that the Buddha suggested we can have to be free, free from suffering. Now, that's different than an academic approach to a teaching where the academic approach might be to broaden one's information about something, so to get uh, more and more uh, comparative studies or uh, more and more vast range of, of knowledge of various uh, details and so on. So that would be, can be quite, quite useful for contemplation, but um, not necessary. The, the Four Noble Truths are, are a sufficient teaching for liberation. So the sense of being able to go deeply uh, into something 
rather than, oh, I've heard that before. You know, I know that one already, give me another one. So it's not like always getting something uh, novel or always getting something new, uh, a new self-help book kind of thing. That's not the way of it. Novelty is nice, it can be very, very entertaining, but novelty can just be that, just a novel way of saying something. Uh, but the, the contemplative mind picks up these themes through study, first of all, so we're asked to, to learn these themes quite thoroughly. And then through looking at them again and again and again, they come up in one's mind. And so that one's thinking life now, one's thinking life is influenced by uh, a teaching and is, uh, uses that teaching to um, observe life. So it's a vehicle, a vehicle for reflection. And the Vinaya is the social containment and the social agreement that allows us to do this together. And then the Dhamma is the inner uh, attitudes, uh, the, the uh, perspectives and the intelligent uh, looking at life through the viewpoints that the Buddha suggested so that we see what he diagnoses as the problem and what he, and, and to see that his prognosis is good. You know, that the, the Buddhist teaching is there is suffering, but there's an end to suffering. So he diagnoses the disease, but he says it's a very good prognosis. You can be free. So it's a very optimistic teaching. Um, but, you know, it does begin with, with conflict and, and a sense of lack and, and, uh, and so on and so forth that come up into the mind. So the themes that, that each of us picks up from that is they're quite personal. We were talking with the lay guest at tea time about meditation and how you know we can get formulae for meditation about how to do breath meditation or how to do um, body meditations or metta. So they get kind of very formulaic uh, representations of meditation techniques. I think all of us find just through the um, trial and error, our own efforts, that there's a sort of intuition that begins to arise. We just know that uh, this kind of effort has led to bad results, or this other kind of effort has given me good results. And so when some, some suggest a kind of effort which gave bad results, you say, maybe it works for you, it doesn't work for me. So it's a kind of personal journey, personal experiment, but it's not self-indulgent. It's not self-indulgent, it's, it's intelligent. It's intelligent. We see cause and effect. So we listen to our elders, we listen to teachers, and we're inspired by uh, texts and so on. But then that the, the, our, our inspiration can't just be someone else's insight. Our inspiration can move to confidence if we gain the same insights that our teachers have suggested, that texts have suggested. So the, the, the life of insight is, is also not a technique. The life of insight is a, is a kind of contemplative maturing, uh, the fruition of our ability to apply attention through the perspectives that the Buddha suggested. And by applying attention in this right way, we can see what the Buddha diagnosed as the problem of suffering and the way out. If we, if we don't do that, and we have just kind of random ways of approaching this, we may get good results, but quite often it's hit and miss. So we have a kind of intellectual consistency in the contemplative life. But it's not just about thought. It's not just about being clever. It's about using thought as a vehicle 
rather than as the end, via using thought or intellect as a method rather than just taking positions. So people who sometimes think they understand Buddhism can be very much caught in intellectual positions. And they can argue very well, and they can debate very well, but they still suffer fear and anger and greed, hatred and delusion. So that the intellect then has placed too high. It's given primary place. But for us, intellect is a, is a tool. And just like a, a magnifying glass is a tool to maybe look at the shape of an insect. But you want to look at the insect. The magnifying glass helps you to focus. So in that, in that sense of us, each of us having our own individual um, intuitions about what works and what doesn't work, each of us has our own individual um, propensities for suffering, the way we suffer, the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to men or to women or to our bodies or, or to all manner of things, the way we suffer is individual. So the genius of the Buddhist teaching is he takes, he helps us to, to give some really general axioms that seem to apply to everyone. So it's about the human experience. Uh, but he couldn't, he couldn't describe all the experiences that each of us have individually. It wouldn't be possible. Teaching wouldn't be alive. So we have to have enough uh, intelligence then to, to, to say, okay, how does this apply to me now? Which is an opinion. It's not like, well, Buddha said this, and then he said that, and then he said this, and then he said that, and that's the truth. Fine. But you still suffer. Whereas... A reflective suggestion is, well, if you're, you know, if you're suffering, you know, maybe you should just look at that rather than blaming it or running away or whatever. Maybe you should just wake up and just have a good look at what you're suffering. And that's a suggestion of observation rather than a position about suffering or non-suffering. It's a suggestion of how you could look at life. And each of us has a kind of particular karmic predicament we're in. So we were talking about a friend having a strong bodily karma, several friends, many friends having, you know, kind of chronic sicknesses or, or um, accidents or whatever, and so their suffering is very much lodged, uh, not just in the body, but the body is a huge source of practice, isn't it? Other people are like physically well, but um, and socially they really suffer from fearfulness or resentfulness or jealousy, and that's there. That's their avenue. And some get the whole nine yards <laughs> altogether. But whatever it is, the, 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 the kind of reflective, contemplative meditator takes it all on board. Say, well, this is what I've got. This is what I'm, I'm going to, to learn from. And so for my own, like my own experience, uh, one of the things I've learned a lot from is fear and I never, I never found fear much mentioned in the texts. I always thought, well, where is that? How come it's not there? And then people would give me reason, but it wasn't there very much. So I found for myself that, you know, I had to apply these, these, these uh, ideas to, of general principles to my, my particular conditioning. And so around, like, fear, if I use the Four Noble Truths, Fear was certainly suffering. Yeah, this is this is definitely this is not good. I'm really suffering here, and then worry and anxiety and things like that. And then 
what's the cause? You know, what is the cause? What's the cause of the suffering? And I'd say, well, because I have to give a talk, or I have to do something that I don't know how to do, or I'm going to be with people that I don't feel comfortable with, or I'm going to have to speak into a group, and I've never spoken with a group. So that's the cause, some social cause. This, this person, this situation, this responsibility, that's the cause. It's external. So if I do everything I can to get away from that external cause, then I'll be free from fear. No. And we all know that doesn't work. We try it. We try to escape from our suffering, and uh, it doesn't really, really work. It alleviates it to some extent. So to go and shake hands with a bear would be stupid. Yeah. But to also see, well, well, okay, this, this particular form of suffering occupies a heck of a lot of mental space for me. Heck, a lot of my time is taken up with anxiety and fear and worry. Maybe I should begin to just see this in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And so I go back to the texts. It is obvious when you speak about it objectively, but when you're in it, it's not so obvious because these habits and patterns that we have can be so deluding. That's the nature of ignorance. It's deluding. And I think the, the, the um, primary sign of delusion is a heck of a lot of I thinking, my thinking, me thinking, other thinking. Self-thinking, I-making, my-making, ahankara, mimankara, the whole sense of me, very, very strong. So whether it's lust or, or, or fear or, or just analyzing all the time, a lot of thinking is a sign of a lot of attachment. And what we're trying to do in, in, in using the Four Noble Truths, we're trying to somehow get below the thinking, get below the storyline, get below the analysis, the constant muttering of thought to kind of some, some deeper issues, some deeper energies, and just see, well, what, what drives this thinking? What drives this self-sense all the time? Why is this, this constant preoccupation with me and my needs and, and uh, my objections and my resentments and my fantasies and my memories and my future possibilities and impossibilities? Why, why the me, mine, me, mine, me, mine all the time? Where's that? What's driving that? And that's not a and a little question, it's more like a, uh, a, a, a magnifying glass to say, what, what, is the, what conditions that self-thinking? What's there before the thought? What is, what is the motivator of that? And from that kind of questioning, you have, you know, we have to be silent and, and attend to the problem. Look, look at the problem. What is the problem? And that is not analytical, it's existential. My existence now is fraught, say, as, as an example, is fraught with all manner of fear. It might be hypochondria around the body, it might be uh, a fear, you know, I, maybe I get a, I get the diagnosis of cancer, I've got some kind of cancer, and there's fear of degradation and pain and so on. Very real fear, nothing wrong with it. And it arises. But why the sense of self? Why does the sense of self get so burned in it? And if we can't, if we can't get behind the sense of self, if we can't get behind the thinking, if we can't get behind the narrative, under the narrative, then we'll never be free because these underlying conditions of greed, hate, and delusion will propel a seeming reality of self and we'll live in the world of selves and other selves, the world of time, the world of suffering. So we try to go deeper than thought. 
deeper than thought, and yet we use thought. We try to go deeper than I thinking, but we try to use thought to say, well, what is it now, right now? What is it like right now? What does it feel like right now? That's a thought. And then we have to let go of the thought and feel this moment. And that we begin to, to just notice what suffering is like, fear is like. And this takes some presence of mind, not just to run in the first lustful image and try to repress it, or not to just run in the first lustful image and follow it, not just to run in the first fantasy and do this and do that, not to just feel the first sense of annoyance and get angry, but to just know suffering as it arises, to know discontent that arises. Um, some things are too hard. Some people just run, run with it, but some things we can. So it takes time. You know, some, some of the things that we figure out the first year, um, we don't figure out our 20th year. Some things you figure out 20 years later and think, wow, I haven't seen that for 20 years. And the ignorance is very powerful, very powerful. So we just keep at it. We just practice for the sake of practice, observing, looking, feeling. Now when we can, we can listen to this moment, and feel this moment, we have a chance to see what the discontent is. We can see that there's somehow, that this moment is this way, and there's something in us which doesn't want this moment this way. And there's something that we don't want, or we want something else, when we don't see that, pushes thinking, and creates a person, creates a sense of self. So we have as a person, arising all the time. So if it's fear, uh, we, the sense of person arises from the fear, and we keep thinking on anxious ways. Me, what am I going to do? How can I solve this problem? Better do this, I better do that. Or if it's a future thing, we plan uh, fearfully, anxiety. And so the sense of self just keeps the fear going. But if we can just stop, and we can focus on the present moment, and this is samadhi, isn't it? Focusing on the way things are. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be some deep absorbed state, but just a sense of focusing this moment as it presents itself and not, not move with the thinking, just to know it as it as is. Then we'll begin to see what the problem is. And the problem is attachment to desire, attachment to craving, wanting something that I don't have, not wanting what I do have. Now that's hard to do. Most people don't do that. They seek a compensation. Uh, they, they run away from fear or they, they distract or whatever it is. So here, we, because we live a renunciant life, there are fewer distractions. Still, there's lots of distractions, but they're fewer. We have a chance to now look at unfulfilled desire. We can see frustration with each other or um, Whatever, whatever, you know, not getting what we want and trying to manipulate people to get what we want or being um, resentful of what someone said to us, blah, 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 blah. We see these formations arising and how the sense of self arises in that. But in any given moment, we can focus. We can focus on the present moment, not to do anything about it, but just to really know, to know what is this present moment like. Then we can see the cause in the end. You can see that the cause is attachment to desire. And we, get, we can begin to taste desirelessness. And this is the third noble truth. 
We can taste the fulfillment of the heart when it accepts the way things are and is not bound by the desire to get something else, desirelessness. And that's there all the time. You know, it's available all the time, let's put it that way. And, it, and it's noticed in the little moments where self-thinking stops. In the little moments when you're meditating and, and you're, you're yet again planning something or you're yet again thinking about something or remembering something or waiting for the, uh, the meditation to end, your mind is kind of talking and talking and then uh, you, someone sneezes and all of a sudden you, you're out of that dream realm, out of that loss of tension and you drop into the present moment, you literally drop into the present moment. That's a moment of desirelessness. Very, it's very infinitesimal, it's very small, very quick. But if you notice that and just take that moment as a gift, that moment where someone sneezes or you, you know, your back makes you wake up or whatever, that moment of, that's a moment of awakening. You know, you're now present to the way things are. You're not, we're not lost in some dream reality, some papancha of thought and self. We just, and to take that moment and make it two moments is focus. Not to get anything, not to get anything, but just to stay present to the way things are. And if we can sustain that presence to the way things are, moment by moment by moment, we'll see desire rising. We'll see the discomfort of unfulfilled desire as fear, as greed, as resentment, as anger, all kinds of ways. And then, then we're starting to practice. That's the beginning of practice. That's the beginning. That's the beginning of bhavana. When you awaken to the nature of suffering, its cause, and you begin to see its end is desirelessness, the end of desire, cessation. And we can come to desirelessness, we can come to that by simple exercises of listening. You know, when you, when you just stop trying to get something, stop trying to go somewhere, get rid of something, you just listen. What does that focus require? It doesn't require a particular kind of experience, does it? It doesn't really matter what the sound is like, does it? What, what kind of focus does that require? It requires a desireless focus. But if I listen and I think, well, if I listen, then I'll get some kind of meditative experience. I'm listening to get something. I'm not in desirelessness. I'm observing, listening to get some result. And that already is suffering. That's suffering. So we begin, you know, we do exercises. We begin to contemplate desirelessness by the neutral, the very ordinary, the breath, one breath, desirelessness. This breath is just this way. Or the sound of the fan, feeling of heat. And we try to build those moments, moment by moment. Challenge, of course, is when it's not comfortable, when there's physical pain, when there's emotional pain, when there's uh, strong memories, when there are patterns of, of uh, um, fear, the way we socialize, uh, patterns of of uh, jealousy, just to be with that, just the way it is, like the, f the sound of the fan, is a, you know it's infinitely more challenging. It's the same exercise. So take the take the exercise, just listening to the fan, and establish pure attention, and then do that for five, ten seconds. 
where there's no person being born through thought, just pure, pure listening. And recognize that, that's the awakened mind. And make that valuable, make that valuable. So that becomes an intuition. That becomes stored away somehow behind the thoughts, behind the analysis. You know, it's something deeper because we recognize and value it. And this is what perhaps the third noble truth is talking about. The end of suffering has to be realized. The end of craving has to be realized. Now you might think there's that's some final product, maybe, yeah. But then how do you use it for reflection? If the third noble truth, the end of suffering, is something that's way down the road for an arahant, then it's a useless teaching. It's just a belief that, yeah, okay, there'll be no more suffering when I'm an arahant. And then I just put it away. That's not a reflective teaching. It has no use. It has no utility. It might be true. But as a, as a, you, know, you can utilize the teaching as reflection. So what would, what would the cessation of suffering mean here and now? Here and now, Dharma. Wouldn't we have to something like in this experience, right now? And you begin to taste desirelessness. What happens if I just wake up to this moment, just the way it is? Just, it's just this way. That, you can't think about it, because thinking about it is not the way it is. Just this way. So you start to enter into pre-verbal knowing before we recognize and put a label on and do something about it. Just this way. Presence. Now, if, if you value that, and you see that as important, then, then, then maybe you say, oh yeah, this is, this is the realization of the Third Noble Truth. I realize this is important. And if you realize that, then that is a, an intuitive insight, not just an opinion. And then that intuitive insight should reorient your view of life, right understanding right view. And that reorientation of your view, that right understanding, then should govern your thinking, right thought, govern your intentions, right intention. Because this is important, because this is insightful, because this is the end of suffering. And that's not an opinion. That's not something that, that you are coerced into believing. That's not a belief. It works. You know, it has, it, 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 uh, it's functional, it's, it's utilitarian, it, it's... Um, it proves itself. And the confidence that comes from that is the confidence of actually really, really addressing the reason you come to this life. The reason we're here, you know, our, our um, non-conformist reason for being conformists. Our non-conformist reason for, for not just settling for distraction and so on, you know. Because you, ha you have to answer that question. I have to answer the questions that I had in college when I didn't want to go that route, don't I? If I'm not answering those questions, I'm not really... I'm just kind of filling in time to be a good Buddhist. Those are important questions. And the Buddha answers them. You know, the, the, and, and the Buddha that answers them is that awareness. That awareness answers them. So just that simple trust in listening to the fan and sustaining that, that's focus. And then doing that a lot, doing that a lot, <laughs> over and over and over and over and over again. And it's amazing how that simple presence can get lost for days, days at a time, even more meditating. And that simple presence of this is the way it is now gets lost into trying to get something or 
trying to attain to something, or it just gets lost in the endless um, rattling of thought. And yet, in any given moment, we can awaken, we can listen, and then sense that non-becoming. So the language we start to use, in, in at least I think we all intuitively develop language now, which is based on insight rather than just opinion. Language is which we we you we take from the Buddha and our teachers, but it's language which becomes very personal because it's a way of remembering our own insights. It's a it's a way of coming back to our own insights. So like language that I like to use, you know, non resistance. That's a very powerful language for me. Might not be for you. But that really answers the question of Vibhavatanha, the craving to annihilate or get rid of or move out. So so for me, that's a powerful word. And it comes from my own insights about vibhavatanha, the craving to get rid of, non-resistance. So it's an echo or a mirror to insight, non-becoming, non-becoming, uh, is a kind of echo about bhavatanha, the whole trying to go somewhere in the future. Just the word dukkha, that all sense experience is unsatisfactory. It's not where it's at. This is dukkha. It's not a negation of sense experience. It's just all sense experience is transitory. can't be the unconditioned. So just the feeling of pleasure, this is dukkha. Uh, feeling of, of, of um, inspiration, this is dukkha. Not a put-down, but a kind of sense of, oh yeah, this is just the way, this is just a condition, just a, a sense experience, and so on and so forth. So we, our language then becomes deeper than just belief. Deep, it's certainly not just conformist language. We don't just use the language of Pali because that's what you do to impress people. It doesn't have any meaning then. It's just an empty artifact that has no guts in it. But the words we use for ourselves, and then our, our language and our intellect is now used in line with insight, and insight is very personal, and that's in line with the Buddhist teachings. And so the Buddha's vision becomes our vision. We see like the Buddha. When you see the Dharma, then you'll see me. Yeah? It becomes like that. And that, that is the, 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 that's where true confidence comes. So our, we begin with faith, maybe, in, in the teachings and in the, in the Vinaya and what our elders have offered us, Buddha. And then we take that faith and we apply it. Okay, these are important concepts. My teacher has said to me, look at it this way. Oh, all right. And I look at it, I look and I look and I look and I struggle and I look and I fight and then I, oh, I see what he's talking about. And then I apply that insight and it works and it's effective and that's confidence. So faith moves to confidence. Not conceit, not some kind of orthodoxy of language, which this is right and everything's wrong. Not that. That's, that's just con conventional. But the confidence comes because it does work, it is effective, the heart is released from suffering, which is why we signed up. And then that release of suffering becomes more and more profound, depending on our karma and, and all manner of things. But the, but the underlying insight, the underlying sense of this is the path, this is the direction, this does work, uh, is a confidence which takes us beyond doubt, not, not 
not the doubt of a fundamentalist Buddhist. This is right and everything else is wrong. That's not beyond doubt. That's the fear of attachment to beliefs. That doesn't free you. It just makes you a nuisance and conceited and so on. But the doubt about where, you know, what to do and the direction to take and how to practice, that doubt falls away. Because one knows that this is suffering, this is the cause, this is the end of suffering. And that, that pathway that one develops through one's intuitions becomes very, very powerful. All right, so I'll leave that for your reflection. Mm-hmm.